Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150. On this fine National Dog Day today, how cool is that that it falls on a Wednesday? So happy National Dog Day, everybody. Eric, what do you think? Good day to take your dog for a walk? Absolutely, and happy National Dog Day to you and yours as well. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) On behalf of me and the listeners. All right. Well, I'm thrilled to be celebrating... um, this this special day with uh, a wonderful guest who I've had on the show a couple times over the years. Dr. Jean Dodds is back with us on the show, and we're going to be talking about her book, Canine Nutrigenomics, that she has co-authored, uh, The New Science of Feeding Your Dog for Optimum Health. Dr. Dodds, welcome back to The Dog Show. Thank you. So uh, I was excited when you told me that this book was coming out and then, um, you know, really enjoyed reading through it and learning a lot about this really exciting information. Um, I certainly learned a lot myself. And, you know, I always knew that food, you know, is one of the most important factors to overall health, immune function, etc. And we have even more exciting information out to as to how exactly it plays a role in that in a really pretty serious way. So I wanted to just start off and uh, give our listeners, because I certainly benefited from a little bit of refresher since it's been a long time since I studied this, um, just basic genetic information about genetics. And if you would just kind of fill us in about DNA and genes and gene expression, and then we'll talk about what the epigenome is. But first, I think giving people a little background info would be helpful, because I know it certainly was for me. Sure, sure. Well, one of the first things we need to realize is that um, in people and dogs and cats, for example, our genome, which is our entire body's um, genetic repertory, so to speak, only 2 to 3% of that genome is the actual genes involved. So if you think about it, the other 97 to 98% are not the actual genes. They're the things that regulate what those genes do. And I can remember, Julie, years ago, teaching everybody that don't worry about it, we're full of genetic junk. The 98% is genetic junk. And I thought, now that we know differently, I thought, how arrogant is that to think that <laughs> God would have made us with mostly genetic junk, mm. Right turns out that the most important part of the genome is how those genes are regulated, because if they're upregulated in a good way, we're healthy. If they're regulated in a bad way, we're sick. Mm. So my goodness, that makes it so important. So 2 to 3% of the genome are our genes, and they control the DNA, which is the actual building block of the genetic material, and it has to be converted into RNA, that's desoxynucleic acid and uh, uh, ribonucleic acid, and it's the RNA then that does its thing. Mm. And so the 98% are the regulatory aspects of the genome, and nutrition is an extremely important part of that. And epigenetics is the science of how the things beyond the genes themselves control how we are, how well we feel, how long we live, and all the other things that are good about us as well as things, uh, unfortunately, that are bad about us. And so food is one of the areas we have to look at to control uh, chronic inflammation and let us be healthy as opposed to diseased. 
So is that other 98% of what you're referring to, is that the epigenome? That's the epigenome. That's okay. correct. So it's everything around the actual DNA. Right. Okay. So when it's it's interesting because it like to kind of for some like I can understand this because I have a science background in my education. I can imagine, though, that if somebody doesn't really have a lot of science background and just hasn't studied this kind of thing, that that might even be hard to grasp. Like, okay, and I think genetics is kind of hard. You know, it's like uh, it's kind of like trying to think about how big the universe is. It's like genetics goes the other way. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, But one of the things we can emphasize, Julie, for, for our listeners is that you have a certain genetic makeup, and people say, oh, my gosh, if, if this runs in my family, let's say diabetes, for example, right. you know, I'm at high risk to get it, and I can be worried, and I can be worried. Well, there's all kinds of things you can do with exercise, with your diet, not getting um, to be overweight, over, um, obesity being just chronic tissue inflammation. And that can prevent the expression of the genes that you may have. And just on August 19th, the NIH released a study where they looked at the obesity genes that people have, and and dogs have some too. Mm. Well, if you've got the genes for obesity, do we just give up and realize that we're going to be fat and forget it? No. You have to prevent their expression. In other words, control the epigenome for those genes. And what they found out, that it isn't the brain that determines whether the obesity genes are turned on or turned off. In other words, whether you feel hungry or whether you feel full. We used to think that the brain controlled that entirely. It's actually controlled by the, the um, development of the fat cells in the body, the, the precursors of adipocytes. The, the cells that are, make adipose tissue or fat are the things that are regulated by the obesity genes. So we can control that ourselves with a diet, with exercise, with, with omega-3 fatty acids, for example. Mm. Isn't that amazing? It yeah. just came out August 19th. Yeah. And such a prevalent, I mean... A study of, uh, you know, I don't know how many thousand people throughout the world in a multi-centric study. Mm. Well, and with how prevalent obesity is now, not just in humans, but in, in our pets as well. Oh, we're Important. eating, you know, high glycemic index carbohydrates all the time. We want a quick fix, right? So we get high sugars, and that only lasts a short time. So we get a sugar fix, it goes right back down again, and then we get another fix. Yeah. You know, what we need is foods that sustain our caloric demands and our feeling of satisfaction or satiety, the word is, S-A-T-I-E-T-Y. So we don't eat high-energy foods when we're on the run because they're not going to sustain us and not give us good, healthy cells and metabolism. So one of the really breakthroughs around this information is that, as you said, we think, okay, well, we, we get our genes from our parents and really that's that, but what where we've learned is that the epigenome, which actually surrounds the genes themselves, mm-hmm. controls whether the genes that we have turn on or off, essentially. Co- correct. And that the epigenome is is uh, impressionable, very impressionable by its environment and can be changed, and that we do inherit the epigenome as well. But mm-hmm. if we change our lifestyle, change the environment, that it was, uh, you know, mm-hmm. used to from our parents. And this makes, mm-hmm. me, makes me think about dogs and generations and generations of dogs who are fed, you know, uh, 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 high in carbohydrate, you know, high glycemic foods, generation after generation. And then you get these dogs that are sort of expecting 
their bodies are expecting that. But you're not, um, it's not determining, uh, you know, your genes. You're not just stuck with them. You can really do a lot to impact. Yeah, and you know what happened? The wolf became the domesticated dog. And because we've been feeding them all these high glycemic index carbohydrates, as you mentioned, the genome of the dog has actually changed and added additional genes to the mix that are not in the wolf to allow the dog to digest starch. Well, heck, that's not what we want. We don't want to make new genes that make them able to digest starch and give them more starch and make them more obese and make them have more chronic tissue inflammation. I mean, the dog genome adapted because that's the way we were feeding it. And you say in the book that that it's like, okay, now hold on, let's not take this information that that they're able to digest starch and make it mean that we can just feed them a whole bunch of carbohydrate. Correct. Yeah. Just like people. And I thought it was really interesting what you said, really how similar we are when it comes to digestion. Right. Right. So pretty much, you know, there are certainly a lot of exceptions and you go through that in detail of certain, you know, grapes, of course, and, you know, chocolate and different different types of foods that do- dogs right. don't do well on. But right. if you think about much of what you could buy, like, say, at a farmer's market, uh, a lot of that would actually be good for your dog as well. Probably most sure, of it. Sure. Look at all the berries, other than yeah. strawberries. Look at all the great berries that uh, that animals can have. You know, blueberries and cranberries, the high o- antioxidant content. Uh, watermelon, uh, regular melons, apples, yeah. pears. I mean, you know, animals can eat fruit and veggies. We forget that, and they and they like them. Yeah. I mean, we have animals that like romaine lettuce. God forbid. You know, yeah. I like it too, but not by itself. Yeah. <laughs> Our dogs like cilantro. Oh yeah, they'll, really? yeah they'll, they'll, oh, because the aromatic, yeah, aromatic herbs are really popular with animals because they can, they have high smell, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And hearing more so than ours. One of the things that struck me when you were talking about the types of functional foods, the, so the foods that cause a favorable environment for the epigenome, so that it sends signals to for our body to develop cells that are healthy versus diseased, for example. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things about that I struck me was when you were talking about vegetables and mm-hmm. um, the uh, relationship between color and nutritional value. I just heard I heard that a couple times. Oh, you know the the beta carotene and and these are these colored vegetables. And then there's uh, I don't remember what the nutrient was, but and this is in more of the purpley, blue, reds. And I thought, oh, that, isn't that an interesting connection between yes, color? Anthocyanins, those are the pigments. Mm. Pigmented vegetables and fruit and foods are high in anthocyanins, and those are potent antioxidants. Mm. In fact, the berry that has 10 times the antioxidant property of the standard blueberry, cranberries, or whatever, is called aronia. A-R-O-N-I-A. It's not in the book. Hmm. It's the choke berry, and I'm embarrassed to say I found out about it. It's an exclusively North American berry. It looks like a sort of overdone blueberry. It's really purpley in color, Hmm. and it has 10 times the antioxidant in it, Hmm. of turmeric or blueberries or cranberries. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I'd never heard of it. Aronia. Yeah, well, you can actually get it. No, you you don't see it fresh, but you do see it, um, you know, like freeze-dried or... 
in specialty stores. Uh-huh. It's a little bit like el- elderberry. Remember elderberry wine? We used to sing about that. <laughs> but <laughs> but el- yeah, way back when, elderberry is actually only about five times. As, it's not as good as aronia. And you, elderberry, you can only have the berries. You can't eat the rest of the plant. And you can't eat it raw because mm. it's toxic. Mm. So, you know, the people in Australia New Zealand say, oh, we do, we do cooked elderberries, you know, because for the antioxidant property. And I say, no, no, you've got to get aronia. It's better. Yeah. Well, I hadn't heard of that before. And what was the name of the pigment that you said? The Anthocyanins. A-N-T-H-O-C-Y-A-N-I-N-S. Okay. It's the name for all the pigmented uh, foods. Okay, so... So the what are some other things in addition to nutrition that impact the epigenome? Uh, your your lifestyle, your exercise, for example, very very important. Mm-hmm. Not only is exercise important, but tasks are important. People and animals need to have tasks to do. Like when you leave your pet to go to work in the day and they're bored, that's not good for them. I mean, they can be destructive. They can do anything. So you need to keep them occupied, and there's a variety of different ways to do that. Um, some people put a, a fish tank with an aquarium. Some people have, you know, those toys that they put a little treat in, so the animal spends all their time doing that. Or, or we see more and more now toys for animals that they have to hit a lever, you know, to something yeah. to get a food reward or yeah. something. They so, need tasks. Yeah, I mean, I was just telling a client yesterday because my expertise is in training and behavior. That if somebody mm-hmm. if somebody asked me if if I had to point to only one one factor that causes you know is the root cause of behavioral challenges in dogs if I had to choose only one I would say definitely that it's a lack of outlet lack of constructive outlet for mental yeah, energy it's boredom in other words yeah, right yeah. Yeah, yeah. So how is that? How does that impact? I mean, is there is there any understanding as far as like physiologically or chemically? How does that translate? There's a lot of information about the specific um, physiological and chemical pathways involved. Um, it's they're too complicated to actually talk about on the sure. on a radio program. Okay. Yeah. But there's a lot known, and what people need to do is just if they want to find out more, is go on Dr. Google. I, I call him Dr. Google, <laughs> and ask specific questions, yeah. and you'll get a variety of different papers and about enzyme pathways. Well, it may be too much, but you could even get something like Wikipedia and go down and read all the stuff we know about people and animals and the history of this kind of stuff, and then the references, what I like about it is you can actually click on them and they'll open them up. Mm. Cool. You know the reference list below? Yeah. It says jump up, you click on it, and it'll open the actual reference. Yeah, that's great. So you can look at specific references that are cited um, and then read more if you're inclined to do that. And sometimes just the abstract is enough because it'll tell you what year and what country of the world it came from. Yeah, okay. The study about seniors and cortisol levels just came out. So salivary cortisol levels came out last week also from Iceland. Mm. Over 4,000 healthy elderly people, 75 years roughly on average, and equal numbers of men and women were asked about their memory, their cognition. How do they memorize or recognize things? Mm -hmm. Turns out that their salivary cortisol levels are low in the morning. Their brains are slightly smaller, but because of that, they're more alert and more astute. In the evening, the cortisol levels go up, the brains enlarge, and they become relatively dummies in terms of cognition. Mm. So the point is 
that you don't want to make any important major decisions in your life in the evenings. They should be in the morning. Mm. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In other words, you don't want to sign an agreement or get involved in something that may be very um, important in the long term as an older person in the evenings. You do it when you're fresher in the morning and your brain is more alert. Interesting. I found that very interesting. Yeah. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, I want to talk about some of the... Uh, ingredients and and things in food to stay away from and why, like corn and soy and genetically modified and, uh-huh. you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to take a quick break. We are talking with Jean Dodds, who is the co-author of a book called Canine Nutrigenomics. I've posted a link to it on our homepage, dogradioshow.com. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I wrote this song because it grew. My heart is strong. Could the finest food on earth? The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. This is Martha Norwalk, every Sunday morning beginning at 9 a.m. Thanks in part to animal communicator and medium Darcy Pariso, we cover the world of animals. This week, August 30th, it's an encore presentation of Animal World. Tune in to hear Jude and Paul Ponton from Whispering Dragon in Seattle work their harmonic energy shifting magic for collars and their animal companions. As they use their acutonic forks, Tibetan bowls and bells, you'll feel better just from listening. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. This is Julie Forbes, dog training, behavior, and nutrition specialist and owner of Sensitive Dog, thoughtful guidance for you and your dog. If your dog needs basic obedience training, a behavior evaluation, or food consultation, I can help you. Call me at 206-372-7399 or visit my website, www.sensitivedog.com. I teach group obedience classes, in-home lessons, and evaluations, and a two-week intensive training program called Higher Education. Again, I'm Julie Forbes, Seattle's dog behavior training and nutrition specialist, www.sensitivedog.com. Hey, dog show fans. Does something stink in your home or car? Pure Air is a powerful odor eliminator that is the only natural food-grade product in its category. It works on bedding, kennels, litter boxes, urine, vomit, poop, even skunk spray. You know, all the fun smells our pets bring into our home. It's so non-toxic that you can literally eat it, a requirement for our home and our dogs. Spray pure air on anything you can put water on and let your nose watch the odor disappear. Ask for pure air in stores that specialize in natural, non-toxic products for home. Or visit dogradioshow.com for a link to their website. I'm Julie Forbes, your host of The Dog Show. Pure air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. More talk, less rock. Come on, that's a good thing. Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. 
do it, Eric. It's and it's. I think it's like a <laughs> thing you've got with Dr. Gene Dodds, who's on the show today, because it was with uh, Dr. Dodds that you found the thyroid song. Oh, true enough. Yeah. And now you're you found a song about how fruit is good for dogs too. That's right. <laughs> un- unbelievable. There's some sort of musical magic that goes on. Okay, uh, so we're back with Dr. Jean Dodds talking about uh, the book that she co-authored with uh, Dr. Uh, let's see, Diane, is, is it Lavadura? Lavadura, uh-huh. Okay. Canine Nutrigenomics, the New Science of Feeding Your Dog for Optimum Health. Very interesting, very readable. Um, they have included sort of additional information in the back of the book. Uh, for those who want to sort of dig a little bit deeper into the scientific information around the topics that they cover. Um, but it is very, very well written, easy to read, very informative. Highly, highly, highly recommend this for anybody who has a dog or cat. And, you know, you can also apply this to us as well, I assume, because we all have epigenomes right. and especially dogs and humans uh, being so similar, digestively especially. Mm-hmm. Canine nutrigenomics. Okay, so in the first part of the show, we talked a little bit about DNA and the genome and the epigenome and, and you know, kind of how they all work. So if you've missed any part of the show, you can find it archived on our website, dogradioshow.com. You can also go to iTunes and download it for free. There's over 300 episodes available to you to listen to. So now I'd like to talk about some of the ingredients in foods to stay away from. So, um, of course, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, and I've talked a ton over the years and you a lot in your book about the benefit of fresh foods, you know, getting away from the processed food. If you can stay away from kibble, you know, the dry pellet food that is what is mostly available to us in this country if you can stay away from it entirely, awesome, or as much as possible. Uh, but I did want to talk about some of the specific um, aspects of our um, commercial pet food world and why. Like, why is it important? So um, you talk a lot about corn and soy and genetically modified ingredients. So there's the corn and the soy, and then the the separate issue of being also genetically modified. So can you tell us why it is important to stay away from any food that, you know, that has corn or soy or wheat? Well, first of all, we have to worry about glutens, right? Yep. Um, there's a whole push in the commercial pet food industry, and, and correctly so, uh, for grain-free foods, that's no wheat, no corn, no soy. Mm-hmm. Most of the corn that we feed may be GMO, and there's actually a website, Just Say No to GMO. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting and very informative. And in relation to, to GMO foods, uh, there were two studies done recently, and there's nothing done in animals on this point, Julie. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked at over 400 soft drinks that people drink all over the world, mm-hmm. and they're made from fructose, corn syrup and that corn syrup is usually GMO because it's from the corn you know that that we don't eat otherwise right and when they looked at that they found a thousand times the EPA allowed level of glyphosate which are toxins okay that can damage the kidney and other tissues that's number one 
Number two, we don't know anything about the mycotoxins or mold toxins that are growing on the cereal grain crops that are harvested when it's very humid or it's damp. There's lots of published information about the damage that mycotoxins do to the health of pet animals that eat those foods. And remember that you can buy a highly uh, premium commercial kibbled food, for example, and the grain may not be grown in the same place and it may not be put together in the same place because the plant on the East Coast would use East Coast grains and the plant on the West Coast might use West Coast grains because it's a logistical problem with weight and delivery of the product. Mm -hmm. So we worry about GMO in that regard. Soy is a phytoestrogen, which means it's a plant estrogen. And if it's not uh, correctly made, you know, um, highly organic and homemade and whatever, we have no idea what kind of toxins are in the soy. And that's a goitrogen. It changes the thyroid activity. It affects puberty. It can promote infertility. It can have all kinds of effects. So good soy is okay in moderation, but we have to be careful about soy. So corn we've talked about, and wheat is a gluten, so we want to avoid glutens. Gluten affects the brain, gluten affects the bowel, gluten suppresses all kinds of things. So that's no wheat, no Mm -hmm. barley, no rye, no oatmeal unless it's labeled Mm gluten-free, no kamut, and no spelt. Mm -hmm. Now you might say, well, who cares about kamut and spelt? Well, we're using all of these exotic grains these days to get into specialty foods, including specialty pet foods. Yeah. A lot of pet foods have quinoa in them now, which is fine, as yeah. long as your body tolerates quinoa. Yeah. I thought it was awfully interesting when you talked about the, you know, well, why does GMO exist in the first place? And that it's actually patented, and most of the patents are owned by the handful of uh, herbicide and pesticide companies like Monsanto and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So that they, the reason why genetically modified organisms exist in the first place is so that they can tolerate being drenched in correct, pesticides. Correct, correct, and try to do that. And it was very interesting. Years ago, um, my dear husband was saying, well, you know, what's wrong with Monsanto's stuff? I said, well, nothing except that some of the things they sell are make them the biggest agricultural moneymaker in the world, mm-hmm. and they sold that stuff to Nippon Soda in Japan. Well, they wouldn't have done that unless they were concerned. So he's saying, well, we're talking about Roundup, okay? Mm-hmm. So he's saying, well, I asked the company, and they said Roundup is as safe as table salt. Mm. And I'm thinking, table salt? <laughs> he doesn't know anything about table salt and polio and cephalomalacia and cattle, does he? Or putting too much salt on our foods, right? Mm. Anyway, so, I, you know, I, we shouldn't name a specific compound, but it's, it's relevant to what we're talking about. So yeah. those are the issues we have to deal with. Yeah. So uh, staying away from grains, I mean, it's just, in, the, oh, it's like so, if you try to hold it all at once, it's like, my gosh, everywhere you turn, it, it really takes quite a lot of intention and awareness to, to try to stay away as much as possible of all of the products that are so easy for us to get that are so bad for us and for our pets. Right. I mean, it's just incredible. We're really not Well, protected. sometimes it's a Humpty Dumpty thing, Julie. If you can get rid of, you know, the major ones, then maybe the body can tolerate the minor ones, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, so now, and I thought interesting, too, because you say throughout the book, um, if you're going to feed dairy, and, and I'm a huge fan of raw goat's milk and... 
and you you talk a lot about staying away from um, dairy from cows. Right. So is this because it's a common um, sensitivity for dogs? Well, a lot of a lot of dogs do have sensitivity to cow's milk when they're not necessarily going to be sensitive to sheep or goat's milk. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have to worry about the cheeses. You know, not all cheeses have the whey um, genomic part of, of the milk in the cheese. Some do and some don't. So that may be difficult. But it's even more important because there's different kinds of milk that we buy. Mm. It's called A1 or A2. And yeah, I didn't know about milk, this. Which, Yes, the A1 milk. This was all revealed in Australia New Zealand some years ago, and we actually have a section in the book about the A1, A2 milk controversy, which is still ongoing today, by the way. Yeah. Um, most of the cattle in our country that we get dairy from are from A1 cows, and there's a particular form of the protein in the A1 cow's milk that can promote problems with childhood dementia and development and whatever. The A2 form of milk does not have this particular uh, genomic part of casein. Beta casomorphine gene is different, and that milk doesn't do it. And so we have lots of countries of the world where the A2 cow predominates, like in Jersey's or Guernsey's or Brown Swiss or whatever, whereas the Holsteins are mostly A1. Mm. It would be easy to get rid of the A1 milk in this country. Simply, You can buy A2 milk, by the way, but you know, very few people know about it, Yeah. Uh, by simply not using bulls for artificial insemination that are A1 type. Right. So if the bulls that were used in the semen collections were A2, you would soon end up with offspring that were A2 and not A1. It would take about a decade to eliminate it, but this is a huge commercial industry political football, and people just don't know about it. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah. Okay, so um, we talked about genetically modified ingredients, staying away from gluten, just like how it's, you know, there's a lot that it's better for people to try to stay Mm -hmm. away from gluten. Same with dogs, Um, corn, wheat, soy, and then barley, rye. You listed a whole bunch of of other grains to try to stay away from. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the processing that kibble goes through. So even if uh, somebody goes and tries to get the best possible, you know, grain-free kibble that has blueberries and cranberries and, and spinach and carrots and all, you know, all of these wonderful ingredients in it and, right. and um, you know, whole uh, fresh meat, not a meal or, you know, no byproducts, and which is a, such a scary topic. Right. Um, but then it gets turned into brown pellets. And you say in the book, you know, imagine if you brought a, you know, your two-year-old into the doctor and they plunked a bag of dried brown pellets and said, just feed your child this for the rest of his life. And he'll get everything he needs nu- nutritionally would be like, what? I don't <laughs> think so. You, you know, there's a lot of problems uh, with that whole process. You know, it's high heat processing in big volumes, and of course, it's extruded, and it's it's once it's it's cooked, it's put through something that makes it a certain size. You know, pellet size. Yeah. But several studies in Scandinavia, Europe, and now recently in America have shown that if you look at the what's on the pet food label and you actually analyze what's in the bag, there's uh, nearly sixty percent of the foods have. 40% to 60% of the foods have ingredients that are not listed on the label. Mm. 
they did the same thing with soy. They looked at a series of even highly uh, specialized prescription foods um, that were not supposed to have in soy in them, and they all had soy. Well, think about it. You're in a huge food processing plant. How can you completely clean out the bins between one batch of food and another? Because you can't use moisture, right? Mm. So you've got to sweep them out. So there's going to be residues, depending on how carefully they're swept and you know the feasibility of it, that are going to get into the next food, even though it may be labeled as soy-free when it's got soy in it. Yeah. So if you've got an animal with a food sensitivity or intolerance, it's not going to help. That's number one. Yeah. But there is hope on the horizon. There are some newer foods now that are baked instead of you know cooked the way they used to be, mm. and they're air-dried, and that's mm. going to be less processed, right? Mm-hmm. So baked cereal foods that are air-dried are going to be ostensibly more healthy and safer than the old-fashioned kibble that's mushed up and extruded. Mm. So that's so you need to watch for that. Yeah. Baked, and air dried, just like raw diets that are now freeze dried yeah. or frozen, yeah. are much safer. They were not that they were ever not safe than uh, they were before that. And you know, if you actually look at the uh, contents side by side of the number of recalls that have occurred in the pet food industry in the last several years, yeah. you'll see many more kibbles have been recalled than raw diets. Yeah. Even specifically for salmonella cases. Yes, salmonella, listeria, and E. coli. Yeah, hundred percent. Which is the yep. whole campaign against raw food. And I'm like, well, look at the look at the FDA website and tell you know read off all of the kibbles that have been recalled for salmonella. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Intuitively, people think that raw is unsafe, but that's not true. Yeah. Even if you don't use freeze dried or frozen, you know, raw diets, you can dunk them in grapeseed extract or grapefruit seed extract remove everything, freeze them in aliquots and all anything, even a bacteria on the surface is done. Mm. But if you take raw meat and you put it on a chopping block, you know, of wood, yeah. and it's warm and the sun is shining on it and you've got infants around, that's just bloody stupid, sure. excuse my French, but, sure. right? <laughs> yeah, have to use common sense. Either. No. no. Well, you shouldn't be. Right. Right. So, um... So the processing that kibble goes through, and it sounds like there's, and and there are, I mean, gratefully now in this industry, it is changing so much. Not only are there so many grain-free on a sort of mass market scale, these grain-free foods, and people seem to have a general awareness about that and really go for Mm -hmm. that more, but that there's also so many commercially prepared alternatives to kibble, dehydrated foods, um, freeze dried mm-hmm. foods, raw mm-hmm. foods, cooked foods. I mean, one of our show partners is the Natural Pet Pantry, and they're a local company, and they do raw and cooked food diets. And I just see these dogs transform when they're taken off of processed food. Absolutely, it's incredible. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. And, pe- and you people look at themselves and think, "I spent thousands of dollars trying to fix my animal. All I did was fix the diet, and look at it. Yeah. You know, it's blossoming." But it happens to us too, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know. We tend to, it's a little easier to control the dog's food for some reason than, than ours, it is ours. Right, huh? right, right. right. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the difference between um, an allergy and a sensitivity. Okay. Um, because I was, you know, certainly reading in your book about your NutraScan test that mm-hmm. is, you know, people can do for their pets. Now, is this just mm-hmm. for dogs or cats too? Dogs and cats, and we're testing horses this week. We're about to start. Oh, cool. 
Right. Um, Horses have a lot of problems that with bowel and skin and itching and whatever, especially performance horses. Hmm. So we're hope to have it. We, we're doing the trials right now, so we're not sure how it's going to work. But getting the right legumes and molasses and all the stuff for horses was difficult oh. in a purified form. Interesting. But 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 it's really important what you ask. Everybody assumes that food allergy is what's going on. This is not the child, God forbid, that has a peanut allergy or a strawberry allergy, and all the foods on, on the planes when you travel will tell you if the snack is made in a factory that has peanuts. Yeah. Allergy is an acute reaction mediated by antibodies called immunoglobulin E, and sometimes immunoglobulin D is in dog, or G. That's a totally different thing. It's extremely rare in pet animals to have a true allergy. What we see all the time in people as well is food intolerance mm. or sensitivity. And that's mediated by different antibodies, the surface um, secretions of your bowel, tears, saliva, urogenital secretions, sweat. Okay, so when the animal or person eats something, food they're intolerant of, let's say a, a gluten intolerant person, right, with celiac disease, mm-hmm. the food that, that the bowel can't tolerate hits the surface of the bowel where the coating of the antibodies is, right, the mucosal surface lining. The antibodies react, and you can measure them in the saliva or feces. Mm. Now, when we started um, doing our NutriScan work, uh, we decided we weren't going to collect thousands of pounds of feces every day at the lab. (laughs) We were going to use saliva. Oh, I wonder why (laughs) you made that choice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, yeah, right. It's not easy. In North America, you Mm. can't get salivary food uh, intolerance testing done very well. Hmm. There's one lab that does a few testing for gliadins, that's the glutens only, mm-hmm. um, but the lab that does the most testing right now is in Washington, in Kent, Washington, hmm. and it's called Enterolab, E-N-T-E-R-O-L-A-B, and they do feces, human hmm. feces samples, oh. whereas internationally you can get saliva testing, but there's hope on the horizon. More and more people in clinical research and basic research are using saliva as the source of the fluids for all kinds of diagnostics in people and animals, mm. including infants now, where you can, instead of taking a pinprick to get a blood sample mm. from an infant, yeah. you can take saliva and look for the same protein. Oh, well, that's nice. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So your yeah. NutriScan test uh, measures the sensitivity or intolerance. Or intolerance, correct. Not an allergy. Okay. And sensitivity intolerance is very common, and we use two antibodies, 24 foods, and everything is in duplicate. And the antigens, the food extracts, come from Germany because they're really, really highly purified and molecularly analyzed, so we're mm. not looking at a contaminant. Oh, interesting. And so basically the word allergy is, is really widely, uh, like, improperly used. Correct, or misunderstood. Okay. Allergies are like environmental allergies, right? Inhalants to pollens or contact to trees or whatever, you know, um, grasses or weeds or right. pollens. That's an inhalant. That's an allergy. Okay. That's a different mechanism entirely than food sensitivity or intolerance. And a food allergy would be something that's really more rare, like somebody, like a person who's, who's you know, highly allergic to peanuts. Yeah, right. You, God forbid they eat the peanut and they have anaphylaxis. Right. I mean, within minutes sometimes. Okay. Or a bee sting, right? So uh, so we're talking about sensitivity and intolerance and that there's actually a way that you can get uh, a lot of the main ingredients answered quickly so that you're not doing, I mean, f- you know, food trial, it, it can take 
takes forever. Yeah. And remember, the foods making foods also contain the uh, uh, material from the an- what the animal ate. For example, if the beef is silage fed with corn, oh boy, and you react to corn, you can't eat that beef either. Uh oh. But if it's grass fed, same with lamb, it may be fine. Mm. So it may not be the beef protein or the lamb protein. It could be what the residues of the food that animal ate that are in the flesh that your pet eats. Mm. And that's proven. I mean, documented. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Makes sense when you start thinking about it. Oh, my gosh. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If if you just think about it for a second, it makes perfect sense. Uh, It's interesting to me. the you know you say throughout the book how really clear it is that uh you know kibble diets are the least nutrigenomically friendly of of anything Correct. and Correct. and and what that means you know and really thinking about what that means because what we're talking about is the impact of food and nutrition on you know the epigenome, which influences mm-hmm. the destiny of cells of what they're of whether they're going to be healthy or not, and you know this this covers, I mean this applies to liver disease, heart disease, kidney disease, um, cancer, seizures, even behavioral problems, obesity, right? All of these issues, and it's like, oh my gosh, this. What is this, the impact that this is having on the health of our animals? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the kibbled industry, the, pet, the $22 billion pet food industry arose because it was convenient for us to do that. Mm. You know, we're part of the, of the reason for it, right? Sure. Yeah. Much easier to buy a bag in the grocery store or a pet store and dump it in a dish, right, with some water and go away. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, and that... People, when they ask their veterinarian, unfortunately, the veterinarians are taught by the companies primarily that own these foods. That's correct. They do the continued education. You can't blame them. It's their job. Right. We just have to be a little bit more astute and more questioning and more thinking. And I think it it helps, Julie, because we're asking those same questions about ourselves. Yes. Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if somebody's happy to eat McDonald's every day and doesn't see the problem with it, they're not, I would probably assert that they would probably be less likely to switch their dog to a raw food diet, which... Correct. You know. Cor- correct. They may not. And one of the other things we have in households that are really busy is the child sitting in the high chair, throwing the food off the high chair, and the animals are vacuuming the carpet underneath because they know they can get treats, but they may not be able to eat those treats safely, given whatever their food intolerances are. If they have a sensitivity to whatever it, it, it is. If yeah. they have, yeah. yeah. And, and so many individuals do. Or somebody comes home, you know, they're at college, they come home, they're munching on that same hamburger you mentioned. The animal can't have it, you know, but comes in, the animal goes, <laughs> you know, yeah. happy, happy, happy. And of course, you give them some, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I you know. have diarrhea for the next two days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pay for it. Not you, but the pet. Right, right, right. (laughs) Okay, um, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back, and we'll finish up talking with Dr. Jean Dodds. We're talking about her book that she's co-authored called Canine Nutrigenomics. You can get it on Amazon and and also through DogWise. Canine Nutrigenomics, the new science of feeding your dog for optimum health. 
You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We'll be back in just a couple minutes. The melodies, allergies to dust and rain. Maladies, remedies, still these allergies remain. Wish your dog didn't hate going to the vet? Wish you were welcomed by a team who cared? Jet City Animal Clinic is an enjoyable respite from the same old thing. Dr. Anderson and her team have created a full-service facility that combines veterinary expertise with a comfortable style. Jet City Animal Clinic is located in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood on 12th Avenue across from Seattle U. Bring your crazy questions, odd ideas, and alternative thinking. Jet City Animal Clinic will work with you to keep your furry family members healthy and happy. Traditionally educated with an open mind, call us at 206-329-0253 or email info at jetcityanimalclinic.com to make an appointment. Jet City Animal Clinic, a unique approach to the health care of your urban pet, a local family practice, jetcityanimalclinic.com. The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair discusses issues that are important to you, like good health and well-being, finding a new job and building your business, overcoming life's big challenges and making sense out of chaos, and living with passion and joy. Join us Mondays at noon Pacific for Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. See conversationslive.net for show schedule and guest information. Pure Air's powerful formula lets you eliminate pet odors safely. It's strong enough to effectively get rid of smells like urine, plus stronger odors like those that can be caused by illness. Pure Air is safe enough to spray directly onto people, animals, or use in the bath or laundry. Pure Air is perfect for dealing with dire situations, refreshing your dog between baths, or just before company comes. Pure Air is the most effective product you can buy to remove stinky pet odors safely. Find it at stores like Mud Bay, McClendon's, and Natural Pet Pantry, or visit their website, pureair.com. That's pure, A-Y-R-E, dot com. I'm Julie Forbes, host of The Dog Show. Pure Air is the only odor eliminator you'll find in my home. You'll love it. Open your ears. Open your heart. Open your mind. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Is that Paul Simon? It's Paul Simon singing about his allergies, yes. Wow. I wonder if he should be talking about his sensitivities. Or maybe it is true. <laughs> it's entirely possible. Maybe you should cut down on the kibble. I think so. 
All right, we're back talking with Dr. Jean Dodds about the book that she has co-authored, Canine Nutrigenomics, The New Science of Feeding Your Dog for Optimum Health. If you've missed any part of this interview or any of our almost 340 episodes now, you can find them all archived on our website, dogradioshow.com. You can also go to iTunes and download for free. So Dr. Dodds, we've covered a lot of ground today, and there is so much more information in this very easy to read and jam-packed with information book. I highly recommend if you live with a dog or cat that you, I mean, and so is this all true for cats as well? I mean, I know cats have different nutritional requirements than dogs, but this all applies. Right, right. Remember, cats are still obligate carnivores and dogs are obligate omnivores because we've made them that way. Right. In other words, they don't have to eat just meat. Right. Cats do, though. Mm-hmm. So canine nutrigenomics, check it out. You'll learn a ton, and your dog will certainly benefit from it if you just follow some of these really easily laid out suggestions. Um, I was very interested, of course, because it's my my work outside of the show, um, working with dog training and behavior, about the connection between this topic and behavior. I mean, we've talked about uh, how, you know, liver disease, kidney disease, heart disease, food sensitivities, inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, cancer, how this impacts all of these, and behavior. And I've certainly seen this over the years. I always recommend my clients switch to a low-processed food. Um, I work with people locally in the Seattle area. I'm always recommending that they switch ideally entirely to something like the Natural Pet Pantry, um, at least partially, um, to get the dogs off of highly processed kibble. Um, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you, you know, you talked, there's some of the, the the direct, you know, physiological responses and how this, you talk about tryptophan and, and uh, um, sugar and all this kind of stuff. But I also think that we don't think that dogs or appreciate how dogs are impacted, how their behavior can be impacted by how they feel. Just like us. I mean, if you were gassy all the time, it might impact your mood. Absolutely. Chronically. It's painful. So, or can be. Um, So just really appreciating the importance of, you know, absolutely, you know, checking out, you know, doing your NutriScan. By the way, the the website there, if you're interested in finding Dr. Dodds online, you can go to hemopet.org. And, uh, you know, for thyroid testing, for the NutriScan test, and a whole bunch of other information, hemopet.org. And I've posted a link to that on our homepage as well, which is dogradioshow.com. Um, to really rule out that there is some sort of food sensitivity going on that could be impacting your dog's behavior. If, if it's uh, aggression or anxiety, I mean, I've really seen this be a powerful factor to resolving um, you know, behavior challenges. And as you said earlier, giving them something to do also, not just physical exercise, but mental as well. So what is the, um, what are some of the things that come, uh, come up for you, uh, you know, immediately when we think about the relationship between what we're talking about and behavior? Well, I, I think oh, we can also look at www.nutriscan.org. There's a little bit more about the food issues there. Oh. I mean, yeah, some animals have behavioral problems because, as you say, they've got a gut ache or they've got gas rumbling in their tummy, and um, 
or they've got intermittent diarrhea or intermittent constipation or whatever, um, some of the things that happen is simple gastritis, right? The animal feels really terrible, and it's got a low-grade gastritis. It's got a it needs an antacid. It it doesn't want to eat, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. it makes it grumpy. Nope. Doesn't get the right kind of um, nutrients to keep it energy. And so simple things like finding out if they have gastritis. We tell people, give your animals some famotidine, an antacid, half an hour before you try to feed them in the morning and see if they'll suddenly gobble the food. So now you know they've got like heartburn or Mm. acid indigestion, right? Mm -hmm. Even that can do that. And that affects behavior. It's not just the ingredients of the food. It's what the food uh, reactivity is doing to the whole gastrointestinal tract. Mm. Um, The other things that people forget about is raw diets are safe animals because they have a shorter GI tract than we do. Mm-hmm. However, I think we didn't say this, Julie, there are some animals that do not thrive on raw, yeah. even though we think it's going to be the best food, if it's the best diet if it's properly constructed. So if you've got a group of animals at home and they all do well on raw except one, don't try to make that animal eat raw. Right. It may have to have a home-cooked diet, you know, right. rather than a commercial cereal food. And foods that are high in tryptophan, uh, the amino acid like um, uh, turkey, for example, or cod, white fish, Mm -hmm. white ocean fish, are calming, okay? So Mm -hmm. they're really good for the mood and behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, Lavender oil is another thing that's really good. Um, Put a dab of lavender oil on the nose or behind um, each ear. And animals that have sudden phobic behavior can be really, really calmed by having something like lavender oil and then a, a variety of herbs that are calming, you know, herbs and supplements that we know are calming. And there, there are various um, mixtures that you can buy from really good supplement companies that will do that. Mm-hmm. Rx Calm, for example, would be one from Rx Vitamins for Pets. Um, okay. It's just one particular one. There's many, many others. Yeah. Well, there's so much to know, and this book is such a valuable resource to people who live with dogs who want to try to get a handle on what do I feed my dog, because we know there are several hundred, at least, options. (laughs) And they all say that they are complete and balanced and (laughs) high-quality protein and only the best for your best friend, and there's really no regulation or very little regulation for any of those statements. So this book is called Canine Nutrigenomics. Uh, Dr. Jean Dodds is one of the authors, uh, Diana Laverdure. Sarah, yes. And She's an animal nutritionist. She just finished her master's cum laude in uh, animal nutrition. Great. She's a wonderful lady, and she does pet food consulting recipes and stuff. Okay, excellent. And your yeah, website? Pet di- petfooddiva.com. Okay, cool. I'll check that out. Uh, so mm-hmm. PetFoodDiva.com, and then right. your website's Hemopet.org, Nutriscan.org, .org. and I'll post mm-hmm. links to all of these. And then also your other work, and I've talked to you on the show in years past as well, RabiesChallengeFund.org, and then uh, your book, The Canine Thyroid Epidemic. Dr. Dodds, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure, and thank you so much for the work that you do to help us live happy, happier, healthier lives with our dogs. Uh, Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes.